coming to you from the lab where they talk about guns, gear, training, and everything in between. Here are your hosts, Mike and Big Key, and this is The Gun Experiment. How's it going, everybody, and welcome to The Gun Experiment. This week, we talked to the creator of the Blarer Spear System, discuss combat psychology, and debate about history's greatest warriors. I just want to remind everyone that we drop new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of every month, so be sure to subscribe and share the show with friends. And this is normally the part of the show where I introduce the big man across the table, but unfortunately, he was unable to be here tonight, so I am flying solo for the first time ever. And I'm not going to lie, it's a little bit tough for me. (laughs) I'm looking across at an empty chair And this is really strange, but we have a phenomenal guest tonight. And before we get to that, I just want to talk about uh, some ways in which all of you out there can sort of support the show. And we've talked about them before, but obviously you can go over to thegunexperiment.com where you can get everything you need from us. It would be great if people could A, join our mailing list. You know how it is out there. You know people hate guns and therefore... I am constantly worried that we are going to get deplatformed. So we need a way to communicate with you. Second, if you could leave us a five-star review and comment on Apple Podcasts, that would be great. Of course, we read those on the air. So please, you know, be those people that are on the air with us. And finally, if you could follow us on Instagram, Facebook, we are on Twitter, but it's not one of our favorite platforms, but we are there. If you could follow our social, we would also appreciate that. Before I actually introduce this guest, I just want to start by saying if you're out there and you're listening for the gun content, you know, I've said it before, we need to be well-rounded people and I like to bring different people on the show, but a big part of what I like to get into is the tactical and self-defense areas. Everyone knows that I uh, do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and if Keith was here, he would make jokes about me rolling around with sweaty people, but uh, it is important to sort of be able to defend you, you and yours. And the gentleman we're going to have on tonight is just world-renowned for this. And really, we're going to delve deeply into the psychology of combat and fighting. And I think if you're here for the gun content, I think you really should stick around because I think this is a really, really important piece to all of this. So without further ado, our guest tonight has been in the defensive tactics and combatives industry for over four decades. He has successfully affected training across all the combat-related communities and is highly regarded for his research in the psychology of confrontation management. Please welcome Coach Tony Blauer to the show. Coach, how are we doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. It is a pleasure to have you on. Um, we were ecstatic to get you on. Um, what you've done in the combatives world is certainly no small thing. You have been around for a long time, and I'm just excited to have you on. Excited to be here, man. Uh, I love the, the the theme of your show, and uh, I love the uh, the fact that you tell people uh, you've got to be well-rounded in the fear management. To me, is the missing link in everything trained. I mean, it drives me crazy every time there's an incident online, of course, on you know what you hear or what you read and on, on all the... Uh, and all the forms is that's why I carry, that's why I carry, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. And I just, it's so short-sighted and can bite you in the butt. So I'm excited to uh, help uh, clarify and possibly even inspire some of your listeners to think uh, think more laterally about their personal safety and their families. Listen, I want to get into a little bit of your history. So Early on, you were influenced, I believe, by uh, by Bruce Lee. I think you were a big uh, Green Hornet fan, if I if I'm not mistaken. 
yeah, uh, you know, just uh, obsessed with that. But the, just just to date that, the original Green Hornet, you know, 1960s. So I'm six, seven years old watching it and just riveted to the screen. I mean, the house the house could have been on fire. And I'd be <laughs> like glued to the TV, my mom screaming, get out, the house on fire. You know, I, I just, I was infatuated with the fighting. I just was mesmerized by it. Yeah. So now around 12 years old or so, you start taking Taekwondo, a studio probably opens up in your neighborhood and you fall in love with martial arts completely, right? So when did it dawn on you that maybe this was a a long-term thing and you could actually make a living teaching people how to better defend themselves? You know, the living thing was a serendipitous element that never, uh, I never thought about the money. I never thought about the job. And it's interesting because one of the things that I do now, you know, here I am, uh, uh, almost 50 years after joining my Taekwondo school in 1972, uh, you know, I'm, I'm coaching people in the self-defense martial arts space on the business side. I always tell people like the art and science of self-defense is very different than the art and science of running a business. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, you know, that, that's a whole other conversation in itself. But for me, it was never about, Oh, I got to get a job. I might as well teach self-defense. Uh, it, it, it was actually uh, much more organic and, and, and much more metaphysical. Uh, I grew up always afraid of everything, but never talked about it, never said anything. Like, you know, I was a competitive skier, so I was afraid to race. I was afraid to let down my team. I was afraid to let down my coach. Right. I was on the wrestling team. I was afraid to compete, but I did. And I did well, but I never did as well as I could because I was more focused on what could go wrong instead of what I needed to do to make things go right. And this obsession with, with fear actually turned into, you know, you know, one of the busiest parts of my company years later, where I was just totally like confused with why am I worrying about all this stuff? Uh, and, um, and the, um, it was interesting, the, uh, you know, I got jumped when I was 12, which is what put me on the path to martial arts. But, you know, you identified the Green Hornet. Uh, when I got jumped, and I went home and told my father, he said, well, you got to learn some self-defense. So we looked around yellow pages, found one, there's only one Taekwondo school. I went there and that for me was like, oh my God, this could save me because what I felt with my, uh, you know, the, me, the six-year-old watching the Green Hornet, watching Bruce Lee fight, watching Batman and Robin fight, although Robin really never fought very well, <laughs> but, but the, but watching all of those action shows, if, if anyone on your listenership is like my age, you know, that like the sixties, we had all those cop shows, Mannix in the streets of San Francisco and all that. So there's always like, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the guy, the fisticuffs save the day type thing. Right. Sure. Of course. And, and so I was very influenced by that. And when I started Taekwondo, because I, you know, I was afraid and I was fascinated with fighting, I made this this leap in, in faith that this is going to save me. Yeah. And um and so uh I uh I totally immersed myself in it and and I I was there I think you know my membership I could train 5 days a week. I wasn't allowed on the Friday course but Monday to Thursday Saturday class and I trained every day at home. Coach, let me cut you off really quick on this. So I just want to point something out here because I don't know if people out there uh, know who you are or have heard your name. But if you're out there listening, like Tony's not just some guy who studied Taekwondo and like, you know, he whatever, he, he kind of dabbled in this. I mean, back in the 
eighties and and then the nineties, like when I was a kid, like if you were on like black belt magazine, you know, you really encompassed what martial arts is, right? And so I kind of want to go here, like so at the core of your system, like, was it maybe it was like me around like nineteen eighty five where you developed your system? Is that is that right? Yeah. So there's kind of like a legacy story that I that I tell if we want to really be accurate. Sure. Um. So when I started training, I fell in love with the training. And I, I had, like many kids, you know, confrontations when I was like 13 and then 15 and then 16 and 17. And, you know, I was probably involved in the first road rage incident in the world. That's a joke. But, you know, like I, I had some adult jump out of a car, uh, you know, when I was 17. Uh, I'm driving. I accidentally cut him off and he flips out and and I'm at a light and all of a sudden I see this guy running towards me, but I'm boxed in. It's summertime. My window's down seatbelts on um and i realized oh my god like if i get stuck in the car and there was no way i couldn't drive so there's no there was no like avoidance but i didn't want to be sitting in my car having this guy punch me in the face so i jumped out of the car and he was on a dead dead sprint at me and we just boom collided and we're fighting over the trunk like bouncing off things and it was like 1977 nobody had smartphones people weren't filming it People actually got out of their car and tried to break it up. You know, there were good Samaritans back then. And um, and I remember, like, after the fight, man, adrenaline racing through my system. And I'm like, what? Can I swear on your show? Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Because I didn't, there were no front kicks. There were no side kicks. There were no round kicks. <laughs> there were no reverse punches. There was fear. There was uh, um, chaos. There was, like, I didn't even know. Yeah. In, in. And I realized, and I didn't, I didn't put it together then, but it was like, you know, I'd been, I had been sparring for years, but when you spar, you, you literally bow first. You, you, you know, the guy, you tap gloves, you smile, you, you, and you go to like, you go to the approved targets of your system. If you're grappling, you're doing something. If you're yep. boxing, you're doing something else. If you're Taekwondo, you're doing something else. And we don't realize all of that really changes our situational awareness because it creates conscious and unconscious bias of where to move and what to do. Well, there's sort of like rules of engagement. So like when, when I do jujitsu, you know, you, you slap fish, you bump, and then, you know, you go to it and they're playing a game and you're playing a game. You know, they, they are sort of doing a jujitsu thing and you're doing a jujitsu thing, but on the street, there's, there's also something bigger, Mike, and it's, it's consent. Yes. Yes. Okay. Of course. So you, you know, let's say you were taking an Epsom salt bath after a hard workout. And you're exhausted and you're falling asleep. And then you hear noise and you open your eyes and, you know, a blue belt jumps in the bath with you. And this is funny. I'm making you laugh. Yeah. Well, Keith would really laugh at this. So keep going. A blue blue belt jumps in the bath with you and starts to uh, uh, ground and pound you. So a couple of things happen besides you flinch, you swallow water, you get punched in the face three times. You, you try to pull guard and then you realize this guy is hitting you. And your brain has to go, wait a minute, ground and pound isn't part of my classical jujitsu. I'm training for sport. I don't have a gi on. I'm in the bath. I'm nude. What the fuck is going on? Your brain, you drown metaphorically (laughs) or literally getting your ass kicked because you didn't consent to that. Right. And, and, and that's the ambush. That's the home invasion. That's the carjacking. That's the attack at the ATM. That's the date rape. Right. that That became my obsession and what I figured out and what I've been teaching since 1980 is evidence-based 
behaviorally based scenario specific self-defense one that encompasses the the neuroscience of surprise the neurobiology of fear of what happens when we're not ready so if i say to you you obviously shoot guns right yes sir you're at the range and somebody says range is hot and you have consent and, and then he has a timer up he's going to he's going to time you and he says mike are you ready and you put your hands up in your in your sort of you know get your hands up position and all of a sudden he goes shooter's ready beep and you go hold on a second i wasn't ready and he goes okay reset the timer like in an ambush nobody says shooter ready right there's no in time ambush. there's no timeouts there's no there's there's none of that right and, and and what we don't realize on the with the instagram generation and this doesn't just go for shooters is is something something I wrote in in the early in the nineties. I mean, when you had to write into the letter of the editor, you had to actually write a letter. <laughs> yeah, of course. And I, I wrote an article uh, um, about consent and preparedness. When there's consent, there's preparedness, and when there's preparedness, you've got readiness. And then and now it's a measure of when like a battle of attrition. So you and I, you know, we jump out of the car, we look at each other. And I go, you're a douchebag, you're a shitty driver. And you go, no, you're a douchebag, you're a shitty driver. And I go, do you agree to fight right now? And you go, yes. And now we fight and you take me down and you make me tap out because your jujitsu beat my street fighting. Right. Well, it's funny because like it's, it's kind of like the old duels. You know, you like slap someone across the face. I challenge you to a duel. And it's like, you know, right, exactly. there's rules of engagement, right? And, and what's funny is as I'm listening to you, it's amazing because like, you know, I, again, I've listened to your stuff for a while and you're talking and you're sort of leading me down the path of where I want to go here. And that's the fact that at its core, your system sort of weaponizes people's natural startle flinch Correct. and it prepares them to defend against a sudden attack. Right. So you figured out this startle flinch, uh, to my understanding, during a drill that you call the sucker punch drill. And yep. um, so like, what it, can you tell us exactly what the startle flinch is? What is that? And how does that, you know, uh, sure. become the foundation of your system? So um, pin that thought and redirect me back to it because I'm going to sure. really quickly take you to what happened. So I'm in love with martial arts, 1975. My mom says to me, uh, I grew up in Canada. I'm a U.S. citizen now. I live in the States, but I grew up in Canada. And so when you're 16, you go, you go to you know, what, like what would be the equivalent of like university or CJEP, it's called up in okay. Canada. And she says, hey, you know, uh, have you thought about what you're going to study? Now, you know, if you're, if you're influenced by your parents and typical society, you go, you, your, your options are you're going to be a lawyer, a doctor, a vet, a police officer, an astronaut, Right, you're going to go into the workforce. It's very cliched stuff. Well, we had a family business that was started by my grandfather, and uh, it was a, a ladies' clothing import and export. And um, my mom says, "Hey, have you thought about what you're going to study in school? Because next year you're going to university, uh, and uh, you know, do you know what direction you're going to go?" And I'm on the floor working on my splits, looking at Bruce Lee magazines, <laughs> who I've of course fallen in love with, like every martial artist, and. Uh, I look up at her and I say this almost word for word, Mike. I say, hey, mom, school's not going to be a big thing for me. Uh, I'm going to be a famous martial artist like Bruce Lee. I'm going to develop my own self-defense system. Wow. I was so enamored by what he had done, but there was something that spoke to me about his his philosophy and his methodology. So she pat me on the head, literally pat me on the head and says, okay, dear, we'll talk about this when you're older. The, the point being is like there was something in it where – I was like, wow, I love this. And it wasn't about the money and it wasn't about like, like the how to, it was this, I love this. Now, 
another side of me that a lot of people don't know is I was always a natural coach. Okay. I, I taught a little tennis. I taught, uh, I taught skiing professionally. So to me, teaching self-defense was, was a dream. Now I went away to school. I continued to train, but I sort of forgot about it because I got sucked into what, what society says you got to do. I got I went that. away to sure. phys ed school. I was going to be a, a gym teacher because I figured, well, I'll do that. I don't really want to go into my father's business. But I want to be like, if I phys ed teacher, I could teach sports and I could coach. I loved coaching. I got derailed from that. I was going to school in the States. I came back. And next thing I know, I'm working at my dad's office as a shipper making four bucks an hour. It's like 1980. I'm still training. I'm, I'm coaching a couple of guys just so I have training partners. So I right. had students, but they weren't paying. They were more like, I need someone to punch me in the face and I need someone to punch back. <laughs> so I'm going to teach Rob and I'm going to teach uh, uh, Bobby. So uh, it's 1980. I'm in the shipping area. And we used to get these big boxes in from Hong Kong uh, that were like, literally you could stand in them. Once they were empty from the garments, you could walk in them. They were huge. Like they were the size of a, a refrigerator and they were thick, thick, thick that if you punched it, like literally if you nailed it with a punch, uh, you'd get this amazing auditory feedback and it was almost like, so 1976 Rocky came out. And of course I'm 16 when that happens, like, you know, doing fighting stuff who didn't yeah, love Rocky. Of course. And of course, if you're a fighter, you know, my favorite and, movie of all time, Rocky's. My yeah, favorite movie, yeah. Yeah. So, so I would punch these boxes like Rocky would hit beef. <laughs> so one day I'm beating up a box, right? So, uh, and, and, um, and I always won in those cases. Great. <laughs> so no box ever beat me. Nice. And um, uh, I turn around and there's this guy, Joey, one of my dad's good friends and, and his biggest client. And he's watching me with admiration. I'd known this guy for years because he was a friend of the family by this time. And he, um, he looks at me and he says, hey, you're getting pretty good, Tony. And I said, oh, thanks, Joey. He says, look, Mitchie's having a bully problem in school. Uh, I want you to teach him, show him some of this stuff. Right. So Mitch is his 15 year old son. And I go, my pleasure. And he's a friend of the family. He said, how much will you charge me? I said, well, I'm not going to charge you. You're a friend of the family. So he said, no, no, no. You got to charge me. That's, this can't be a favor. How about I give you $20? I will pay you $20 every class. Make sure Mitch has never hurt. Teach him, make him bully proof. Right. All of a sudden I realized, did he say $20 a class? <laughs> and I quickly do the math and I'm like, oh my God. Like I haven't even taught one class and I'm thinking, holy shit, I'm rich. Like, I mean, <laughs> one class. Uh, Mitchell, three months after I started training him, he got into confrontation with his bully. Up until then, it had just been verbal. It went physical and Mitchell got dropped. Boom, left hook. The guy dropped him. And when Mitchell came back and said, hey, man, I got dropped and I'm really sorry, coach. I didn't do anything that you taught me. Right. And I said, well, what the hell happened? He said, well, you know, the guy shoved him and I lost my cool and I grabbed him and slammed him against a locker bank. And while I'm yelling at him never to touch me again, he drops me on the left hook. And I'm going, well, why didn't you do? And I make a joke now because we all know what the karate kid wax on, wax off. Right. I didn't say, why didn't you wax on, wax off? Because the movie wasn't out yet. But I was like, why didn't you slip? Why didn't you parry? Why didn't you block? Why didn't you do any of the things I showed you? And if you can visualize this, I know this is just audio. But he grabbed the guy with his left hand, slammed him against a locker bank. But he's a 15-year-old at school. Guess what's in his right hand? Books. All his books. Yep. He's, he just got popped. And here's the thing. I didn't know it at the time. 
But I want all of your listeners to understand this. If you got cops listening, if you got uh, bouncers listening, bodyguards, if you got moms who carry, dads who carry, if you got your keys in your left hand and your briefcase in your right hand, and you got appendix carry and shit kicks off and you get scared when you flinch, your cross extensor reflex contracts around yes, whatever sir. it's holding. If you have nothing in your hands, there's a good chance your fingers will splay, your hands will come up to cover your head, and then they will push out towards the threat, deploying like an organic airbag. And that's like one of our our, our proprietary metaphors, if you will, because it's a wonderful image that like, like I've got this airbag, a DNA level airbag, and if I can weaponize it, it can save me from this sudden violent impact. And I use the airbag metaphor because of the metaphor in your car and and people go, yeah, but my jujitsu, yeah, but my taekwondo and I'll do this. And I go, listen, Mike, are you a good driver? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Everyone thinks they're a good driver, but if somebody drives into you, your driving skill is irrelevant. In other right. words, the sudden violent attack, someone trying to stab you, shoot you, run you over to your car. It doesn't matter how good a driver you are. Cause in the moment you're like, what the fuck? Boom. You get hit coach. So, so like if I, if I'm trained in firearms and I'm trained in jujitsu and I'm trained in striking, but someone comes around the corner and you'll boo. The initial thing is from my understanding of your startle flinches, I have to first sort of, uh, stop the initial sort of attack before I can implement those other resources, the gun, the jujitsu, the striking. First thing I have right. to do is I have to stop the initial onslaught. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And we have a fun expression. We say, if you're scared shitless, unconscious or dead, you're not going to get your next move. Right. So, so, you know, if I say, well, yeah, a guy throws a haymaker, well, I'm just going to double leg him, take him to the ground, ground and pound him. I'm going to double leg him, take him down, uh, uh, smack him a couple of times. He'll turn over. I'll, I'll, I'll sink my hooks in and I'll lateral vascular neck restrain him and put him to sleep. Oh, I'm going to lean back and kick him. Oh, I'll just, I'll just get one hand up. I'll, I'll drive forward with my elbow you know, like this, and I'll draw my weapon and I'll hit him with my elbow as I crash into him and contact shoot him. Can I point something out really quick? Because I think people are maybe confused on this point because I've actually gone online and I've looked, I've actually looked at your detractor. If I could monetize them, I'd be very wealthy. Go on. (laughs) Yeah, right. So here's the deal. People who don't understand you, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this. It's not that you're against striking. It's not that you're against grappling. It's not that you're against firearms. But what people have to understand is your methodology is the sort of psychology of fear, the psychology of fighting, and how to sort of weaponize the idea that before you can implement those other tools, you have to wrap your head around the idea that first you have to deal with the initial onslaught and that those other implements, again, Jeet Kune Do, and um, mixing all those things together you're bringing in the psychology piece. And I think that's the part that a lot of people don't realize about you. Yeah, you're right. I'd like to to offer something that might help. Sure. I'm assuming you've got some decent basic first aid. You can put on a tourniquet, yes, you know, some basic stuff, I do, right? Yes. Okay. So you're a really good driver. You're sitting at a light, minding your own business. You're a good Samaritan and a drunk driver or somebody uh, uh, falls asleep at the wheel or somebody's texting and they slam through the intersection and they hit you. Does your situational awareness matter in that moment? No. No, not at all. So there's a school of thought that says like head on a swivel, get off the X, situational awareness. And that's a true thing, but situational awareness is a conscious cognitive skill. You need to be conscious and you need to be looking at stuff. 
So if you look down for a moment because your phone blips and you know you're not going to text, but you look down for a nano moment, you're not looking at the road anymore. You're not looking at the intersection anymore. Um, and we've all had close calls. You have, you're a good driver, but you've almost had accidents switching lanes because somebody's in your literal blind spot. It happens to every, every driver. Sure. It's a literal blind spot. Um, and it's a close call. Well, so here you are, you're sitting there, you're a good driver, you've got good situational awareness and you're sitting there and you're going, holy shit, that guy doesn't look like he's slowing down. Oh, oh my God. He goes through the light, bang, he hits you, he hits another car and it's, and he's at a speed where your steering wheel is going to crush your chest, except you're not in a 1967 Chevy, you're in a modern car. And what is that modern car equipment? Airbag, baby. And an airbag saves your life. Right. The airbag becomes the buffer between you and a crushed chest and a, a broken rib puncturing a lung or what have you. Right. And you all of a sudden you're stunned, but you're alive. And then you go, oh my God, a car is on fire. So your brain recalibrates and goes, I got to get out of my car. I got to get out of my car. That's a complex motor skill. You reorient. You went from primal gross motor and an airbag saving you to strategic, tactical, get out of the car, undo the seatbelt. Oh, I'm trapped. Shit, I got a knife on me. Great. I cut the seatbelt. Gotcha. I get out of my car. Now I see that somebody's injured and they and their leg is, is badly cut. Yep. And you take your belt off and you put on a tourniquet and you save a life. So your 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 system is the airbag, and then yes. all those other things—the jujitsu, the the knife fighting, the yes, gun. Yes, jujitsu is the tourniquet. Yes. the gun is the tourniquet. It's the it's the technology and or the complex motor skill required to apply that or deploy it effectively. That's a great analogy. Yeah, this is where the detractors miss the boat on my stuff, and it's unfortunate because I have hundreds of affiliates and have taught tens of thousands of people worldwide who, if you have an open mind, you come in and I'm going, look, what I'm teaching literally is the neural biology of fear. A sudden violent stimulus will attack your physiology that supersedes your physicality. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can be a badass boxer, kickboxer, jujitsu. If a stimulus surprises you, it, I'm not challenging whether somebody's brave or willing to fight. You know, I've, I've got, you know, Frank Shamrock in his heyday was probably the most all-round MMA fighter that, that we had, certainly one of them. Um, you know, in, in one of his classic fights, a uh, guy comes running across the, the ring, and I forget who it was. It was the, he was the uh, Olympian wrestler who showed up in a singlet, and everyone thought he was going to grapple with, with, uh, with Frank, not Ken, Frank. And he comes running across the ring and does one of the first Superman punches in UFC history. And here's Frank Shamrock, who's a great striker, great grappler, completely flinches, finger splayed, pushes away danger, ends up arm barring the guy or triangle choke. I think he did an arm bar. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the fastest tap outs in UFC history. He used the airbag, coach, right? He used the airbag. Yeah. So, coach. I have to ask this question because if Big Keith were here, he'd be asking it. So, it. and it's it's on your your startle flinch. So we took a firearms course, and and it was from a, a very good, very reputable trainer. I, I'm a big fan of of them, and and I love the course. And part of their course, they use some of your startle flinch right. uh, work. And so we did a drill where the drill was that before you draw your weapon, you're going to simulate 
in your mind, imagine that someone says boo around the corner or somebody jumps out and is about to mug you or whatever. And before you go for the gun, you're going to throw your hands up to protect your face or you're going to, you know, you're going to make some movement that would in your mind be a natural reaction. Correct. And the idea, I understand the idea, but big Keith, he really struggled with it. We left and I said, Keith, what'd you think? And he said, I love the course, but that, that startle flinch thing. He said, he said, fuck that. He said, I don't get that shit. And I said, Keith, I said, and I, I've since convinced him. I said, listen, I said, the point of it isn't that maybe like your reaction that you did in the drill wasn't what you would normally do. But the, re- the idea is that if someone says boo or something scares you, you're not going to go for your gun right away. You're going to probably protect your vitals. You're gonna, your hands are going to go up. And I said, the instructor's trying to show you that your hands have to go from up to what you call fingers splayed right. to then down to the gun. You have to, you know, maybe take a step back and then go for the gun. And I said, they're trying to show you that it's got to go from fingers splayed up, protecting the face or whatever down. And I think where, where the big man had trouble was he felt goofy and he felt it was unnatural because in his mind, he always thought if someone scares me, I'm going right for the gun. And I've tried to explain to him, but physio- physiologically speaking, you're going to actually try to defend whatever you're going to, you're going to stop whatever's there again, airbag analogy. Right. So my question is this, A, is there a better way to do that drill other than doing some goofy, like, you know, Oh, I'm going to put my hands in front of my face and then go for the gun. And yeah. do I have this right? I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Like, so, so the individual you're talking about, I don't know if it was one of his trainers or the, or, or the guy who runs the company, uh, he trained with me years ago before he developed. I believe so program. Here's a, here's a, here's a problem. I've seen it too. And ironically with all, with all respect to this individual and and other people who use some of my material and, and some people uh, professionally reference it, which I I'm very grateful for. And other people don't fuck them. But the, (laughs) the, the, the problem is when you don't truly understand the essence of what we're doing, it becomes a caricature, a caricature, if that's the right word, of yep. this organic movement. I think the big man would appreciate, I think Keith would appreciate that because I don't think he doesn't believe that it's good. I just think he felt unnaturally goofy and awkward. I, I think I think the problem is that, and, and I actually uh, I pointed this exact thing out because without spending a lot of time talking about this because it'll come across as me criticizing something, but this is my life's work. And there are a lot of people out there that borrow the idea of a flinch and the language of the flinch and then pose the flinch. So it looks like Madonna Vogue dancing (laughs) and it fucking drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, the startle flinch is organic and you don't know how you're going to move because it's based on uh, perceived proxemics, meaning if somebody says, Mike, look out, and you think that came from your left side, your flinch is going to be oblique and it's going to cover your, your left hand will come behind your head and maybe your right hand will immediately shoot down and grab your holster. Right. Um, if I came at you and I was standing in front of you and I went and punched you in the face, both hands would come up, you'd push away danger 
And if the guy said, I'm going to fucking kill you, you would have to take care of business in front of you before you could access your gun. Right. So uh, what's happened around the world for people who, so we have a gunfighting course that you guys should, should come to. In fact, uh, I I don't know when you're going to air this, but I'm actually teaching it for uh, at Mike Glover's Fieldcraft in about three weeks in uh, Heber city, Utah. Um, But you know, hearing me or my team teach it, we do a different job because we explain it like the organic airbag. So you're not posing the position and feeling like, why am I doing this weird thing with my hands and my body? Why wouldn't I just grab my gun here? Right. Um, it's it's incumbent on the presenter to make this principle alive, come alive. So we understand we understand this that if 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 you were sitting in a restaurant right now. And, and you're carrying and you're taking a bite of your burger and an active shooter event kicks off and a bullet goes whipping by your head, you know, goes through your burger and hits the wall. Um, somebody else gets hit behind you and gets screamed. Your natural motion would be like all those pictures you see online, both hands covering your head because um, of proxemics, auditory visual, uh, fill in the blank perception, your hands would come up to protect your head. And and this happens at a non-conscious startle flint. Nobody, this is a big thing. Nobody says, holy shit, this is happening really fast. I should flinch even quicker. Like, like nobody, then that, so that's the problem with classes that try to teach the flinches. They don't understand all of the neuroscience around it. So they end up saying, put your hand like this, simulate the flinch. And what you're doing is you're creating this neural pattern and it's, it's taught in an inefficient way. Yeah. And I want, and I want to say like, I mean, like the class was great. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is it just felt a little bit like uh, disingenuine, you know, and I don't know if it's in the spirit of what you kind of teach, but you know, it was a great course. And I actually have a question for you regarding firearms. Cause I do want to talk a little bit about guns yeah. before we move on to another segment here. Um, where do you feel, in your opinion, like kind of kind of move away from your normal thought process here? In your opinion, like where do firearms fall into a person's defense plan? Right? Like I I I firmly believe that they they need to be there. But where once we've moved past the airbag phase, if, if right. you will, do you support firearm ownership and do you think it's a vital part of defensive plans? You know, I have guns and I shoot and I practice stuff. A lot of it depends on so many factors, man. Where do you live? Are you prepared to go all the way? You know, what is the likelihood? Like, are you a cop? Are you are you a bodyguard? Are you military? Did you grow up with guns? Um, it's it's one of those things like the old cliche maxim, you know, it's better to have one and not need one and then need right. one and not have one. Sure. So I've used that before, by the way, even though it's probably, probably shouldn't, but I have used it. But, but it's true. You know, if, if just think about like, if you need a gun, how bad are things? Right. Right. So, uh, but I will say this though, and I think you and I, I think we would both agree on this. If you're going to carry, you once said, I'm going to quote you, you once said, real fights are only the ones you can't avoid. I believe that was the way you said it. And I, I, you know, if you're going to carry a gun, I've said this to people before. So like, all right, I'll use my jujitsu. I'm a, I'm a blue belt and, I do carry a gun and you know, if you're, if you have fighting skills and you're carrying a gun, 
it is even more crucial that you're able to disengage and what verbally and and walk away from a fight because once you get sort of tangled up with someone and you're carrying a gun now it becomes a moment where you might have to pull the gun and now we're talking about uh, you know, a legal fight and a lot of other things and the idea of taking a life. So, I mean, do you agree with that? Like if you're going to carry, you almost have to be able to walk away more so than the average person. Yeah. I mean, it, it, this is like a whole other podcast. If we really, <laughs> if you want to go deep in it, you know, like if you said to me, should I study Thai boxing or, or jujitsu for self-defense and I carry, I'd say a hundred percent Thai boxing right? It, it takes you five or six biomechanic shifts to figure out if your arm bar or your strangle or your leg lock control can submit somebody. I do worry. I have to say, I do worry sometimes in terms of carrying that. And again, we're talking about well-roundedness. We, we mentioned that at the right. very beginning. I do worry. I do worry about that. Follow the logic. If you're standing in front of somebody and there's a confrontation that you, that is going to go physical, I know after I strike you, like right away, if I got to run or I got to escalate yep. to something else. I just broke my hand on you. I hit you in the face. You smiled and, you know, pulled out <laughs> a knife or a gun. Right. Um, but if I take you down, you know, does my gun accidentally come dislodged? Does the guy feel my gun? Does the guy grab my gun? Yeah. Does he have a gun that I didn't know about? Well, when you go into like pull you, you know, you talk about guard, there is a whole lot more to consider when you have a gun on your side. You know what I mean? So like there's, I, I there's definitely- also there's also positions grappling where suddenly your gun is trapped. Yeah. Yep. You're 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 a right handed shooter and you happen to end up you fall to the ground and you cross side on 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 your gun side, and then suddenly you realize the guy's stabbing you in, in the back because he pulled out a blade and and you can't get to your gun yet. Yeah. So coach, I have a really fun segment I want to get to with you. But before I do that, Keith will absolutely kill me if I don't ask this question to you. Yeah. You actually mentioned Rocky earlier. Yes. So before we move on, you actually were on the set of Rocky Five, And all I want to know is how cool was that for you? And uh, how was Stallone in person? That was insane. That was, <laughs> that was insane. That's another podcast, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're, maybe we'll have you back. How's that sound? The Because I, I was actually on the set multiple times during Rocky five became friends with Tommy Morrison. Cause cool. I was, I was working on some equipment design for ringside boxing products. Oh, cool. And, uh, so, you know, he called me up and said, Hey, can you go to the set and, uh, work with Tommy? Cause he, he's, he was a pro at the time. Yep. So, you know, they sit around for 12 hours before takes uh, between takes. Can you do pad work with him? Can you go running with him? Can you do stuff? So I was in Philly with Stallone and Rocky and, and, and Tommy, I was in LA. Uh, I, I, I got, you know, two of the coolest Stallone, Stallone was completely cool with me That's cool. Uh, because he met me as a fighter. And, um, I got, I got a couple of amazing stories uh, with him, which I can share if you want. Well, I'll tell you what, I do want to get to this next segment, but could we have you back sometime and actually hear some of those? Uh, yeah, I, I would love that. And I never even yeah. finished telling my, how did I come up with the spear and all that stuff. This is normally the part of the show where I would actually ask where, where can people find you? But I'm going to tell everybody, first off, everything as always is in our show notes. But just Google the man. I mean, Tony Blower, you know, uh, the Blower spear system. I mean, you're everywhere. And, uh, you know, I, can it, I interrupt, Mike? I just want to yeah, say two things. One is with regard to the course and the individual, because most people will know who that is. Yep. Um, the, the, listen, the intention is on their part 
is is positive. It's to make people safer. There's because the spear is my life. There's nobody except somebody on my team, my mobile training team, of course, from HQ, that's going to explain that with the with the passion and 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 the clarity and the three dimensionality connecting the neuroscience, the emotional, psychological factors like us. So if you're trying to just introduce it quickly, you know, you might, because you've consumed my material, go, oh shit, this is kind of, they're injecting Blauer Spear before the draw. I get that. Okay. But because you're, you've already consumed my material, that made more sense than yes. Keith who goes, what the fuck are we doing this? So like I'm doing like this, this Vogue dancing thing and then I'm drawing my weapon. That's, that's silly. I've seen it. And I, and let me tell you this, you're not the first, second or third person that has brought this to my attention. There's nothing I can do with it unless this company contacts me and says, can you do a segment to train my trainers in a better way to introduce this? We'll reference you properly. Sure. It'll be professional. We want to get to the shooting part. We just, because this individual and some of the members of his team actually were trained by me. They actually went through one of my uh, course qualifications years ago uh, before this program was developed. So their spirit is in the right place. It's, it's, it, it, it can, it can just be, I just wanted to professionally say, you know, that they're, they're doing a the shooting part. They're doing a good job. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's just deeper stuff to make this more clear. The other thing I wanted to say is I'm not teaching people techniques. So anybody who's doing jujitsu, taekwondo, boxing, I love all that stuff. I teach a lot of it, but the filter, I don't have an unconscious bias. I have a conscious bias. I, my job is to make you safer sooner, regardless of your level. Yes. So we have a, we have a course called Be Your Own Bodyguard, which is a one day course. Now, if you ask your jujitsu instructor, Hey, I got a friend who teaches self-defense in one day. What do you think? When he finishes laughing, he's going to say the guy's a scam artist. That's bullshit. You can't, you can't do that. But Mike, let me ask you this. When you took your tactical first aid course taught by a paramedic, it was a half day course where you learned right. how to put on a tourniquet, how to clear the airway, how to do mouth to mouth, how to do CPR. So you can learn life-saving skills in a half a day, but no doctor is going to walk into that class and start laughing at people at the general public for trying to learn this. Sure. And that's what happens with the detractors. They're experts. They're like, let's pretend they're doctors who are laughing at a program they don't understand anything about because, gotcha. because they don't understand that what I'm trying to teach people is, hey, this is how you detect and avoid. This is how you defuse and deescalate. And this is how you defend using primal gross motor movements. You can't learn jujitsu in a day. You can't learn to box in a day. You can't learn taekwondo in a day. But you can learn the principles of personal safety in a day, and it will make you and your family safer. That's a great way to put it. That's a, and, I, and I do understand that. That is a great way to put it. Hey, coach, I want to get to this segment we call Running Gun with you. And this segment is basically a fun segment. And you're the only the second person that we've ever done this for. I've actually switched it up a little bit to kind of go a little more into your wheelhouse. So it's a little less firearm, a little, little more combat. So the way this works is I'm going to ask you 10 rapid fire questions. I want you to give you, you give me the first answer that comes to your mind. Got that? Yes, sir. All right. Number one, what is your favorite gun in your personal collection? Glock 19. Wrestling, jujitsu, or boxing? Oh, uh, ooh, boxing. If you could have a drink with one person living or dead, who would it be? 
Holy moly. One person living or dead. Oh my God. I don't know. But I, Bruce Lee, I thought of right away. That was a good one. Uh, favorite caliber. Favorite uh, caliber, uh, nine mil. Favorite hobby, not combat related. Oh, I love movies. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Mm, stop talking so much. <laughs> All hell breaks <laughs> loose. Is it better be armed or trained? So I missed it. Say again. All hell breaks loose. Is it better be armed or trained? Uh, uh, trained. Is it better be loved or feared? Loved. Rifle, pistol, or shotgun? Good grief. Pistol. You're in the worst scenario imaginable. Who do you want to have your back other than your spouse? Mm, right now, it'd probably be Mike Glover. Let's mix it up. So, Coach, before I start this next segment, do you want to hang on and do some more with us, or do you have to run? I, I, can, I, can, I can do a little bit more. I, I got a, uh, a meeting at 4.30, so we can... Okay, cool. We can play a little bit more. Cool. So on this segment of Let's Mix It Up, uh, this is generally where we kind of just shift gears a little bit, but it is still related to what we've been talking about. And I want to talk about managing fear. So it's right in your wheelhouse. And I've heard your story before about competitive skiing and the idea that the fear sort of really prevented you from sort of maybe being uh, as successful as you could have been as a competitive skier. And, and, you know, I I know you've told that story before. You know, what I want to know is this. I put myself in these sort of mental exercises, um, you know, what I would call, you know, I'm out at a restaurant, I say, what if this happens? What if that happens? How would I react? And it's sort of a, again, mental exercise. But the reality of is when you, when it comes down to it and fear is introduced, how do we manage that fear? You know, like even competition, like I, you know, I competed once in jujitsu and I haven't done it again. And, and truthfully, it's fear, you know, it's, it's just the nerves. And, you know, so I kind of, this is, this is your wheelhouse. You know, how do we manage fear? The way I approach it is really, I I think different than, than conventional approaches. And my whole, my whole thing is, is just to immediately just start off changing our relationship with fear. Uh, Meaning how do we make friends with it? If we make friends with it, uh, it, it, it kind of like dissolves, loosens, changes its hold over us. Most of us grew up with a, a completely negative association with what fear is. And for me, you mentioned my skiing story right off the bat where, you know, when I started to like kind of like really introspect on that experience, one, one sentence blurted out of my mouth and it was, if I'm so good, why am I so scared? Right. And that was, when I say that, like when we do our no fear seminar and for people listening, I spell no fear K N O W. That's the name of our, our, right. our, I don't want to say motivation. As in company, get to no fear, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. So K N O W versus N O fear. And, and so as a skier, I'd be there going, oh man, don't wipe out. Are you ever going to win? Like people say, you're such a good skier. The coach is t- depending on you. Uh, you want to win, but why are you so nervous? Why are you, why are you, you know, why do you got to piss again? How come your hands are sweating? It's freezing up here. Nobody ever explained to me as a kid that, that fear was just adrenaline in your body and, and anxiety and arousal and all of the, the, the fun pedantic sounding things that you learn about in, 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 you know, sports psychology and stuff like that. 
Um, and so, you know, after decades of trying to help people uh, learn how to defend themselves, I, I, I stumbled across this observation, and that is the people who manage their fear manage to fight. Hmm. I'll say that again. The people who manage their fear manage to fight. And it doesn't guarantee victory, but it, man- it, it guarantees that you're in the fight. Uh. And there's a ton of research that says that if you're in the fight and you lose you're much more resilient than the person who never fought and lost. And that person has PTSD or other yeah. uh, psychological it, What's trauma. interesting about that is it, it reminds me of uh, the man in the arena. Have you, you've heard that from Correct. Teddy Roosevelt, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, what's funny is, um, so there's two, two pieces here in my, in my mind. One is like competitive fighting, things like that is, you know, a lot of that is even my my coach in jujitsu has recently told us that, like, you know, he gets sort of like, man, and I don't want to I don't want to put words in his mouth. But basically, like right before the things happen, it's kind of like, man, like, you know, it, it's got those butterflies. But once he's on the mat and it actually is happening and it kicks in, that all goes out the window and he feels great. Right. right? But what I find interesting is there's some things that are irrational. And I'll use this as an example. You get into an argument with someone who has cauliflower ear. Well, yeah. that might make you go, shit, this guy is a scary dude. He's been in a lot of fights. I, I'm, I'm scared of this guy. But maybe the guy got hit in the head with a bat when he was a kid, and that's why he's got cauliflower ear. So, right. But our mind makes us sort of go to this place that maybe isn't even rational, right? But at the same time, maybe the dude's a badass dude who I should be afraid of. So how do we balance that, like, yeah, maybe this is a rational fear versus maybe this guy's really going to just, you know, smoke me. I think you need to take a step back and and ask, like, what's the scenario? In, in other words, I always start from the choiceless choice. There's going to be a fight and you're afraid. What do you do with your fear? So Dan Millman... I don't know if you remember the name or know the name. Do you ever read the book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior? I've heard of the book, but I've never read it. Yeah, you dig it, read it. Um, so he wrote the book. This line isn't from the book. It's it's from stuff he, he's written after. But he said, if you face just one opponent and you doubt yourself, you're outnumbered. Hmm. One of my favorite quotes ever. Yeah. Um, if you face just one opponent and you doubt yourself, you are outnumbered, Dan Millman. I hate him for saying that because I wish I said it. That's a good, <laughs> it's a good yeah. I love it. So, like that's so that's where I start when I'm coaching people on. So, and it, and this is what I mean by what's the scenario? I've coached, you know, world class MMA guy, help coached. I've coached fighters. I've coached business people. I've coached, you know, right now I'm indirectly coaching a ten year old kid dealing dealing with the anxiety because of all the lockdowns. I'm doing it through his dad. I'm equipping his dad with skills and he's passing them on to his son. So the No Fear program, when I finished it, I was like, oh my God, like if somebody had taught me this when I was 10, I might be a world famous skier and not teaching self-defense. Like, holy shit, right? Uh, Fear changes everything in our lives. And it's the psychological fear, not the physiological fear. So the butterflies, the anxiety, the nausea, like your jujitsu coach, that's so uh, did you know Mike Tyson used to throw up before his fight? It's funny you say that. I actually have on my notes here that both my, two two of my like sort of scenarios I always talk about or, or people I talk about is 
Mike Tyson and both Mike Tyson and George St. Pierre have both said that they were yeah. like, they hated fighting. They were scared, you know, scared. And, you know, yeah. it's amazing that guys like that, you know, it's, it's not this sort of, um, it's, it shouldn't be this shame. Well, you would know it like, like, like St. You know, St. Pierre just, uh, yesterday there was a clip of him saying somebody asked him and, and he said, uh, that, the the day of the fight was the worst day of his life. Yes, yeah, I've I've heard that before from him. You yeah. know, and but he didn't say that ten years ago, right? Because because your ability to articulate and become that self aware matures like a wine as you age. Yeah, really nice analogy there, right? And so you don't know because when you're twenty, you got like ego invincibility. Yes. When you're thirty, you're thinking this better work out or I'm going <laughs> to have to get a real job, right? You yeah. know, and. And then suddenly you're the world champion and you go, holy shit, if I make some good investments and do well, I don't need that payday. Holy shit. Now I realize I fucking hated fighting and I did it because it was the most direct path to self-awareness, right. self-actualization. It was confronting that fear. One of the things you had said before, and it, it made me think of one of my favorite quotes, which is, and I'm going to try not to screw this up, but. Uh, walk a mile to avoid a fight, but once you're in one, don't back down an inch. And that sounds very simple. That kind of makes me think of what you're saying, which is, you know, of, of course, you know, we're scared and nobody wants to be in that fight, but you got to get over that fear once you're in it. Once you're in it, you got no choice at that point. So you better be in it 100%. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, uh, um, I, I would interpret that that quote differently, but I can see how you're overlapping it. And, and I could just shut my mouth and not say anything. No, go ahead. You know, I want to hear what your interpretation that's, is. But that's one of my superpowers that I wish I, I had, right? The ability just to go. Just, no, I, I want to hear your interpretation of that. I really do. So, you know, walk a mile to avoid it, but don't back down an inch, right? Nice, nice visual, I, uh, you know, the mile versus the inch. And to me, I go, what does that mean? That means do everything you can to avoid a confrontation. But when it's time to go, you flip that switch and you own the real estate. You're not backing down. Yep. Um, it takes courage to walk away. That's fear management. And it takes courage to move into the fight, into the pocket, into the eye of the storm. There's fear management and courage in both directions. So let me let me talk about the connection to courage and fear. This is one of my favorite lines, and it's from our No Fear course. That was a shameless plug I, for everybody <laughs> talking about. Um, I love this line. If you can't be brave, if you aren't afraid, yes. there is no courage without fear. Right. Let that, let that meditate for a second. If you do something and I go, oh my God, Mike, that was the most courageous thing I've ever seen. And you go, what are you talking about? I do that all the time. Uh, I, at my camp this year, we had a, um, 63 people at the camp. We were talking about fear. We were talking about bravery. We were talking about courage. And I said, how many of you here know for a fact that you will run into a burning building, that you will run into a burning building to save a kitten, to save a person, to save a dog? You know for a fact. I said, don't put up your hand. I'd like to, I'd like to, you know, I, you know for a fact. And this woman puts up her hand halfway and she says, I'd like to believe that I will. And I go, I appreciate your, your honesty. But you're not sure, right? Because there's trepidation. Oh my God, I'm running. What do I know about fires? What do I know about structure? Right. And then I turned to a guy sitting in the front row and I pointed at him and I said, sir, do you know for a fact whether you would jump into a building? Now, 
I had set up this before the, before the class because I knew who this individual was. I told him not to put his hand up. He's a professional firefighter <laughs> at my seminar. Gotcha. And I said, sir, do you know for a fact? I said, would you run into a burning building? He goes, yeah, 100%. I said, you know that for a fact? Yeah. I said, are you afraid to do that? He goes, no. I said, this guy actually hopes the hotel we're in catches on fire. <laughs> and everyone laughed. And I said, you know why he's not afraid? Because he's a fucking firefighter. And that's his job. Right. And when he was training and they were doing mock fires, like in, in a burn building, there was people that washed out of that. They couldn't overcome their fear. There were people right. that, that they learned to manage their fear. So it's they not so much that he doesn't have fear, but it's that he can manage the fear. Is that right? Right. And so what we teach people is fear management. Yes. And that's why the name no fear versus no fear. Very interesting. So coach, I have, I have one more segment here. Um, it's a real quick kind of fun one. Can you hang out, hang out for a minute? Sure, go for it. All right, cool. Well, I think it's time for the boys to sit around and shoot the shit. All right, so tonight on Shooting the Shit, we are going to debate the greatest warrior culture of all time, and I think it just kind of fits with the theme. I've been waiting to do this for a long time, and I found the perfect guest to do it with. So, Coach, I'm actually going to let you go first. Um, who did you pick for this? Definitely uh, Antifa. They're the greatest. Wow. That's a fucking joke. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's a joke Ooh, hopefully man i was about I, to say man you're gonna light up you're gonna light things up right now aren't right you? i was like wow oh man like, fuck this guy. no 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 no. those guys are disgusting and <laughs> i'm disgusted by them and and fuck those guys um uh i, I you know it's it's cliche because of the movies but know you going. know the, the spartan culture yes yeah i know you were gonna say, i knew you were gonna say that you know and I'm, I'm a big fan of gates of fire i actually became friends with stephen pressfield okay. which is mind-blowing cool yeah you know what's funny is so i did a list and uh the the very top of my list was the spartans and then i kind of said you know what i i, I knew you were gonna say the spartans i don't know how i knew but i just knew because let's be honest they were literally raised to be warriors they had no other function but to be warriors correct yeah, but there, and there, but there's two personal things that make it unique for me. One is um, the drills they developed for their close quarter shield work are almost identical in in rep scheme as the ballistic microphone fight that I created in the '80s to help people manage violence. That's cool. That's is that the phalanx? Is that what that's called? Yeah, yeah. They, but 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 it was not so much that it was how they trained it, what they did with the reps. They had you know wooden swords, wooden shields, and they would do these short engagements to develop tactical stamina, endurance, and and they would do instead of long protracted stuff. So when we do our scenarios, we don't do like one twenty minute scenario. We do twenty one minute scenarios. Okay, gotcha. And it's a whole different protocol. And when I when when Pressfield described this training protocol based on his research and his extrapolations. I was like, oh my God, like they were doing, or I'm doing what they were doing years ago, if this is accurate. Oh, that's so Holy cool. Shit. Yeah. And then the other thing is the, the Spartans were very psychological and, and, and they were teaching uh, an ancient level of no fear, of, of fear management. Yes. So right. it's, there's a, there's a no. connection here. There's a special sort of place in your heart for this, right? Like, right, right. Yeah. So, it was like it was like me going, you know, you know, Patton saying, "Look, you know, uh, I don't want you to die for your country. I want you to make the other guy die for their country." <laughs> and you're like, "Who? Yeah, let's go." Right. I get that. 
And then, and then there's Leonidas we're seeing everyone scared and someone goes, yeah, they, apparently they got so many archers that when they, they, they fire, they, when they release their, the arrows, like it blocks out the sun. Yeah. And then he goes, well, so we'll fight in the dark. Yeah, yeah. It's like, like, it's like, wow. That's okay. Cool. This, yeah. This guy gets- when I was doing mine. So the first, I kind of wanted to go away from Spartans. I knew someone was going to pick them and I, I don't disagree with it. I just, I was like, I, I got to go a different direction here. So my initial one was the Comanche. And okay. my, that was my initial, I said, I, I kind of want to go Comanche, but if you don't know, I mean, like they stopped, uh, the, uh, the expansion northward and westward. And they, I mean, they fought to the very end, but ultimately, unfortunately, you know, we know what happened to the Comanche. So I, I couldn't ultimately in good conscience pick them. And my pick, uh, was actually the Gurkhas. So for those okay. that don't know, the Gurkhas are warriors from Nepal and, uh, you know, the, during the British empire, you know, the, the famous saying is the sun never sets on the British empire. Well, it set, set in Nepal because they went to Nepal to try to take over and the Gurkhas literally slaughtered the British. I mean, it was a horror, so bad that years later, the British said, well, you can't beat them, join them. And they said, come fight for us. And, and they've been doing that ever since. Right. So. Uh, in a more modern, I, I kind of look at them almost like the modern version of the Spartans, I guess, maybe if you want to put it that way. And, you know, you, I know it sounds like you and I both love quotes, right? So two things here. One, uh, their motto is it is better to die than to live like a coward, which I think is like, man, that's freaking badass, right? Yeah. And there's a quote that was said about them that says, if anyone tells you he is never afraid, he is a liar or he is a Gurkha. And I said... Yeah. that's pretty cool you know and, and i mean these guys i mean if you look it up online i don't know if you're a, a history buff coach but these guys i mean there's stories of guys literally catching and throwing back grenades one after the other and then like one blows off a hand and they fought one-handed against like you know 30 40 people and 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 came out alive i mean they're almost like the the, the living embodiment of like the Spartans, in my opinion so i kind of think it's cool that you know you sort of pick the what i think of as like the uh ancient badasses sure. of the world and i kind of feel in my opinion that i sort of picked the the modern sort of version of that you know what i mean so yeah i'd love to to talk to whoever designed their training yeah like what it exactly <laughs> exactly that'd be a cool uh you know that's funny because one of the questions i ask in our trainer programs i go uh um you have a half an hour to take a picture and sit down and talk to somebody uh, and these are these are the two people, Muhammad Ali or Angelo Dundee. For those people who don't know, Angelo Dundee was Ali's trainer. Okay. And everyone goes, Ali, most famous man in the right. world next to Bruce Lee and Jesus Christ, right? So <laughs> I go, you're in a trainer's course here trying to become a better trainer. And you have a chance to talk to the guy that coached Muhammad Ali throughout his career or Ali, who never coached anybody. And you, right. you you accidentally picked Ali. So if you want to understand f- managing fear, designing programs, uh, coming up with strategies to to you know f- fight the best fighters in the world, why wouldn't you talk to the coach? So you talk about the Gurkhas. You could say, and there was one story recently of the guy uh, uh, a Gurkha. It was just a, a year or two ago who like. There was some attack where where I think he he fought off like seventeen people or twenty seven people. Uh, the the stories are crazy for them. There's crazy stories. But I don't want to talk to that guy per se. I want to talk to the guy that trained him. Like I want to right. go, dude. 
What did you tell this guy? What were the drills? I think that for them, from what I've read, though, it's a cultural thing. Their whole cult—it's very similar to the Spartans, really. Like their culture right. is warrior. You know, being a warrior. So, you know what I'm saying? So, Coach, listen, I really want to thank you. I mean, you know, having you on here and talking to us about the spear system and all your knowledge of combat psychology. I mean, I think it's a part of this that people don't really think enough about. So, you could train in all these things, but I really do truly think that you have to put in a mental aspect to this. You know what I'm saying? And to everyone out there listening, we want to thank you as well for taking time out of your day to tune into our show. You can find links in the show notes to all of our social media, so be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter so we can keep the conversation going. Coach, I really enjoyed having you on, and I really hope that you will come back and join us. And I do want to hear more of those stories in depth, if that's okay. Yeah, no, I I enjoyed this, Mike. You're very well prepared. Uh, uh, You know, most people have been on so many podcasts, and everyone's prepared, but you really did do some homework and that that kept this uh this fast paced and and you asked me different questions and and i dig that and i appreciate you uh and i'd love to be back on awesome coach we'll stay in touch and, and again i really would like to have you back thank you so much